everybody. This is Natasha Crane, and you are listening to episode number one. If you're not familiar with what I do, I write and speak about faith and family in a secular world, and I've been doing that for the last several years. I've written three books, uh, more specifically, three apologetics books for parents, and I write a blog at my website, natashacrane.com, and Crane is spelled C-R-A-I-N. But a lot of people have asked me over time if I could do some kind of podcast, because not everyone's a reader, and sometimes it's just easier to listen to things as we do them, and so I decided that I'm going to give this a try. Something that I don't like when I listen to podcasts is a lot of chit-chat at the beginning of episodes or big intros and things like that, so I'm going to keep this really minimal, and I want to just jump right into my first topic. I thought a lot about what I wanted to talk about in this very first episode, and there's so much that we could cover, but something that was really on my heart was to talk about this feeling that so many of us have right now, that our culture is just in this downward spiral. So that's why I'm calling this America's Downward Spiral. But more specifically, what do we tell our kids? So I have heard from so many parents over the last few months especially who say, I am feeling the weight of where our culture is going. I'm feeling the downward moral direction. I'm feeling the downward spiritual direction, the downward political direction. There's so much that's going on. It feels like this dark cloud a lot of times. And I want my kids to be engaged with the world and understand what's going on. But I'm also kind of concerned about overwhelming them. So parents sort of are are torn between wanting their kids to be kids, but also giving them the kind of upbringing that will really prepare them to deeply be part of today's world and to engage with it from a biblical perspective. So we have this difficult balance as parents, and that's what I wanted to talk about today is how do we do that? How do we help our kids have a healthy spiritual understanding of the state of our world and at the same time, not making it so overwhelming to them and so troublesome to them that they are in a worse place spiritually than where we left off. So let me say up front a little bit about my overall attitude toward parenting because it shapes a lot of what I'm going to say. I have to tell you that I am not worried about my kids feeling sad about the state of the world And I don't think that you should be either. Now, I'm not saying that we want our kids to be depressed. No one wants our kids to be rolling around and feeling crushed by the weight of the world or anything like that. But I do think that as parents, a lot of times we are trying too hard to protect our kid from having difficult feelings. So here's how I think about it. If my kids feel sad after processing the reality of our culture today, they're actually responding with a godly conviction. So just think about that for a second. If your kids understand what's going on and they don't have a lot of feelings about that, then either they actually don't understand what's happening, and if they're small, that might be the case, or they actually don't think it's that bad. They they don't understand from a biblical perspective, or maybe they're completely wrapped up in the secular viewpoint themselves. So if our kids feel sad, that's okay. We don't want them to feel overwhelmingly sad, but we want them to have the godly conviction that this is not how things are supposed to be. This is not where we want to be, and we need to respond accordingly. So what we want to do 
overall is to help them accurately understand what's going on. And that's sort of the descriptive part of our job is just giving kind of the facts of this is what's happening in our society. But then number two is about helping them process that. And I think that's the trick with not leaving them in some kind of desperate sadness or some kind of fear about what's going on in the world or anger about what's happening, is to not just leave them with the description, but then to take them to the next step of saying, let me help you process this from a biblical perspective. How do we understand these feelings and what to do with them now that we understand this? So just a little story from my own childhood to acknowledge that I do understand sometimes we can put too much on our kids. Uh, In the 80s when I was growing up, it was sort of a thing that was talked about in certain Christian circles, including my own, that Gorbachev, the Soviet leader, was the Antichrist. Now this kind of sounds funny looking back, but at the time there were a lot of Christians who really believed that this was the case. And uh, my mom was one of them who was really starting to think, this could be it. And I remember really distinctly one day asking my mom, well, if that's true, then the end of the world must be coming pretty soon. Like, how soon do you think the world is going to end? And I remember it so clearly because of the impact that it had on me. She looked at me and she said, you know, I don't know. No one knows for sure, but I would say it could happen by the time you're in your 20s. I was just profoundly sad at this. I was a a young kid and I wanted to grow up and I wanted to have dreams. I wanted to be a math teacher at the time. I wanted to have a family, all these things. But at the same time, my mom was telling me the world was very likely going to end by then. And that's all that we talked about. There was no, you know, let's talk about what that means or how to think about that. And so I was kind of just left in that position. And I remember feeling overwhelming sadness about it. So that's what I would like to help us not do is to really, with our own kids, make sure that we are helping them process it in a godly way and in a way that is is true to our convictions. What I want to do is go through those three big areas that I mentioned at the beginning. I want to talk about handling moral issues and handling spiritual issues and handling political issues. And I guess I should say up front that if you're listening to this and you're thinking, Natasha, Whatever do you mean? I don't think that America is in a downward spiral. I don't see any moral problems, spiritual problems, political problems. Everything looks great. Then this is probably not the episode for you because I'm not going to convince you that these things are headed in a downward direction. I'm going to be assuming that you've been feeling that and you feel sort of the burden of that direction as I know that so many people do. So This is for those of you who have felt that and are wondering what to do with it. So let's start with the moral direction. When we see moral decline in our society and things that just break our hearts, frankly, a lot of times, how do do we help our kids process that? And the example that I want to give you is of abortion. And I know that this in particular can be a hard topic for parents, especially if you have younger age kids in elementary school. A lot of parents wonder, when should I talk about this? How much detail should I talk about it? They don't want to make their kids too sad. But again, I want to emphasize that it's okay for our kids to feel sad. And in fact, it can be a good thing. And 
I feel like so much of the world, when we see older teenagers and they start going a different direction or they start thinking of abortion in a very worldly way and maybe they grew up in a Christian home, the secular world has overridden their conscience at that point. I firmly believe that if we are talking with our kids about this subject before the world gets to them on it and has a chance to override what that natural moral compass gives them that God has put within them, that is a wonderful thing. Obviously, if your kids are four or five years old, they're not going to be in a position to understand that yet. But by the time that they have a basic understanding of where babies come from, it's okay. And I think it's actually a really good thing to have that conversation so they understand what is happening in the world. So a really good example of this, and I'm just going to share how I talked about this with my own kids, was when very recently, just a few weeks ago, the country of Argentina legalized abortion. And what you saw on the news, I don't know how many of you actually followed some of this, but what you saw on the news you just had crowds and crowds of people who were cheering. They were crying with joy that this had happened, that finally women had the right to choose abortion. If you're a Christian and you're looking at that and you're seeing those cheering crowds, they're cheering, they're celebrating the right to kill their unborn children, that's a difficult thing. And I immediately, when I saw that, I knew that I had to show this to my own kids to talk to them about that reaction and how we, f- we should feel about it as Christians. And my kids, just for a reference point here, I have two 12-year-olds, they're twins, and a 10-year-old. And so I show them the pictures of this. But here's what I really want to give you as a framework for thinking about these moral issues. And this just isn't just for abortion. I'm giving that as an example. But this is really for any type of moral issue. I believe that the key to helping our kids process this is to show them how different views would be consistent with different understandings of God. So let me give you an example of this. When I show my kids the videos and the pictures of people celebrating this, right now in their lives, they fully accept Jesus and thank God. And they look at that and they say, well, this is, you know, this is horrible. This is atrocious. Why are they celebrating? But instead of giving in to the response that they probably expected of me at that time, which was, yes, isn't this horrible? I said this. I said, You know, from a Christian perspective, a Christian worldview, you're absolutely right. But let's take an atheistic worldview as an example. In other words, a worldview in which God doesn't exist. And I said, if you are an atheist, then this kind of celebration for this particular event, the legislation of abortion, is actually consistent with that worldview. So we're looking at this and and it could be easy to look at these people and say, oh my gosh, how can they do this? But it's actually consistent with their worldview. So then I went on to do a brief comparison and a brief contrast with these two worldviews. And I want to share with you just how I said it to them directly so you can get a feel for how I would present something like this. So here's what I said. 
I said, in an atheistic worldview, so let's just take that one as an example, there's no higher than human moral authority. There's nothing that exists outside of nature. So we're all just human beings. And in this worldview, life developed from non-living matter just by chance. And then all living things developed from that first cell over billions of years through the process of natural selection acting on random DNA mutations. That's that's the evolutionary theory. That's the story of creation in a naturalistic world where there's no driving force. There's no intelligent agent behind it. It just happened through natural forces. So we have to think about that for a minute and what it means for human life. In that kind of world, there's no inherent value to life other than its physical parts. Because there's no creator. We're just a bunch of molecules. That means there's no objective meaning, no meaning that applies to all people. There's no objective purpose. And ultimately, there's no basis for calling anything right or wrong. It's all just a matter of personal opinion because there's no moral standard and there's no moral authority. It's just human beings that developed by chance over a very long period of time. So that's what an atheistic world would look like. And if that's your perspective, of course you would resent religious people telling you otherwise. The whole idea that there's this God, this supernatural being that's out there in the outside of the universe and he's somehow revealed his will for us in this holy book would seem absurd to you. It's something that you don't accept because you're the ultimate authority in your life. And if somebody's going to come along and tell you what to do with your own body when you're the authority and there's no one else outside of you that you're accountable to, of course, this is going to seem crazy. And of course, you're going to celebrate in this way when your rights are given back to you, that there's no moral authority that's been placed upon you. That's consistent with an atheistic worldview. And then I would remind my kids of how exactly that's different from a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview. In our worldview, there is a creator God who made humans in his own image. He's the one who has given us our value. We're not just the sum of our physical parts. We're not just dust. We're not just molecules in motion. God himself, in creating us in his image, has imbued us with a value. He made us in his image and created us all equal. And so Christians value human life, whether it's in the womb or outside of the womb, because human beings are valuable from their creator. There are a couple of reasons why I really love this approach of helping my kids with these moral issues in terms of looking at what's consistent with different worldviews. The first thing is that it helps them understand each worldview better. So they're understanding what Christians believe and what the Bible teaches outside of just your everyday Sunday school stories. I mean, yes, the kids need to hear about Joseph and his multicolored coat and Daniel and the lion's den, but a lot of times in Sunday school and youth groups, they're not actually getting into these deeper worldview issues to understand the logical implications of the worldview that comes out of the Bible. So 
when you draw it out for them, it helps them to think of these things as a whole instead of just in these fragmented parts that they sometimes get over time. So number one, it helps them understand the Christian worldview better and also helps them to understand someone else's worldview. We're being charitable in this. We're not looking at them and we're saying, these people are crazy. Can you imagine celebrating this? That's rather condescending, even if we feel that way. Instead, we're taking a tone of saying, hey, that's consistent with an atheistic worldview. And of course, I'm not suggesting they're all atheists who are celebrating this. That's a whole other conversation. And we could go off on a tangent on that. But suffice it to say, I'm just using that as one worldview example of why some people would feel that way. So it helps our kids understand the worldviews that you're comparing and contrasting. The second thing it does is it really helps kids to understand that worldview matters. Sometimes parents say, yeah, you know, my kids are Christians, but I don't know that they really care that much because, you know, it doesn't seem to affect their lives. Well, they might not have a real deep sense of just how much their worldview matters. And I can honestly say that after hundreds of hours spent in church as a kid, this was me. I believed in the Lord and I was saved and, you know, I wasn't rejecting my faith or anything like that, but I didn't understand really how that fit together as sort of a a set of lenses through which I would see the entire world. So this is an important way to help our kids to see that their worldview matters so much and it affects how they see literally everything. And finally, once you've made that comparison and that contrast, that's your opportunity to say, so as Christians, you can see why this is such a big deal. This is why it is such a sad thing and why we do need to take the time to stand up for truth in a culture that doesn't value life. Because if there is a God who created us and if he has imbued us all with this unique value and if we are therefore all equally valuable, then this is a tragedy of the greatest kind. Millions and millions of unborn babies are being killed every year. So as I said, this is just one example of a moral issue that is plaguing our society right now. There are a lot of them, but in each of these cases, just consider how you can explain to your kids what's consistent from a Christian worldview and what's consistent from another worldview that you're looking at, usually a secular worldview. It will help them to process this so much more deeply and really help them engage for the future. I want to go on now to talk about the spiritual decline in America and how to talk about that with our kids. And and this is such a huge, huge subject that we could talk about this over multiple episodes, actually. But I just want to kind of touch on a basic way of understanding this for now. What we're seeing in America is that fewer and fewer people are identifying as Christians, but more specifically, fewer and fewer people are identifying and accepting a biblical worldview. So just to expand a little upon this, and I'm actually working on a new book called Faithfully Different, in which I'm talking about a lot of these issues. So the research is really fresh in my head. When the researchers go out and they poll people, they give them a call, they ask them how they identify religiously, 
If you do that, 65% of Americans today will take the Christian label. They'll say, yes, I'm a Christian. The researcher marks a little box, and then they go on with their lives. But we have to understand that that could mean all kinds of things. That could represent a lot of different worldviews. There could be one person who is a very faithful follower of Jesus who says, yes, I'm a Christian. But then you could also have a person who grew up in a Christian house, and so that's just kind of the closest thing to what they would identify as, or someone else who maybe agrees with Christian values, but they don't really take on a whole biblical worldview. You you could go on and on with this, but I just want you to realize that when 65% of people say they're Christian, it doesn't mean they actually see the Bible as the word of God and live according to it. This is just how they are self-identifying. So it is far more helpful for us to look at the research that talks about how many people actually have a biblical worldview and, and tries to quantify that. So a few studies have been done along that subject to look at what people actually believe, not just how they label themselves. How do they believe and how do they behave and how do those things line up? And what they found is that about 10% of Americans have a biblical worldview today. 10%. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. Not only is that a minority in America, but that's a small minority. And furthermore, they've actually found that within churches, within evangelical churches, that only about 20% of people have a biblical worldview according to these basic criteria in terms of how people see the Bible and the authority of the Bible. That's incredible. So it's not that just that Christians with a biblical worldview are a minority in America, but they're also a minority within the church. Think about that. So when we talk about spiritual decline, most of us probably don't have all these statistics in your head, but you're sensing it and you can see that there seem to be fewer and fewer Christians, fewer and fewer people who have Christian values and fewer and fewer people who actually believe in the Bible. And if those are things that you sense, you are 100% correct. That is absolutely the case and the research bears that out. So when we talk about spiritual decline, we are talking about a very steep and rather quick drop-off of people who actually trust in the Bible as their authority for life. And this has been happening uh, over the last decade, but over really the last 20, 30 years especially. And there's more research that you can get into on that. But for now, I just want to I just want to say that that is kind of the, the basic finding of where we are. So what does that mean for our kids? Well, we can just plod ahead and teach them what we were going to teach them anyway and raise them the way that we are raised, but that's not going to go a long way toward helping them prepare to be independent in today's world. And so what I want to do is just share with you a little bit from actually a blog post that I had written a couple of years ago, and it was called Committed Christians Are Now a Worldview Minority and Your Kids Need to Know It. This is really what I want to share with you on this subject is it's not enough to just keep plodding ahead. We need to actually help our kids know that, yes, we are in a spiritual decline in this country. We are in a small percentage of people who believe what we do. This is so important. And I want to share a few reasons why that's so important. Number one, when you make it clear to your kids that, yes, we are in a worldview minority, it sets their expectations. And this is perhaps the most important function of all. If kids expect that their views will be like those of others, they'll be shocked when they consistently see how different they actually are. 
Your kids look around and they keep asking, why are we doing this? You know, Mary Jo doesn't have to do this. And, and Tommy over here, he doesn't have to do that. They'll constantly be comparing. But when you set the expectation of saying, hey, we believe something vastly different when what the world around you believes. In fact, only about 10% of people believe the way that we do. They're going to expect to see that things are different for them. If kids expect that holding a minority worldview won't result in sometimes being treated poorly by others, then they will actually be wounded by what they weren't prepared for. So by setting their expectations, they're going to understand, yeah, I am in the minority. Other people don't like what I believe. And I need to expect that there are going to be people who are pushing back on me about this. And by the way, that's why apologetics, helping our kids know why there's good reason to believe Christianity is true, is so important. If we're setting our kids up to understand that they're in a worldview minority today, there's going to be a lot of pushback on them. We better also be setting them up to understand why it's worth taking all this from other people, why it's worth pushing against these cultural norms. And if kids come to believe that Christianity really is true and they have that deep conviction, then it's worth fighting for. Then it's worth standing for. Then it's worth being in the minority. When they don't have a good sense of that, it's a whole lot easier for them to just walk away. So when we consistently help our kids understand that their worldview is going to clash all the time with the people around them, they'll begin to have some very different expectations that will lead to healthier outcomes. They're going to expect to be different and they won't be surprised when they don't fit in. Really importantly, they'll expect that the world will hate them, literally, for their beliefs and understand that that has always been part of what it means to be a Christian, just as Jesus says in John 15, 18. So this first point that when we help them understand they're truly in a worldview minority today, it will help them to set expectations in really healthy ways. The second reason this is so important is that it allows us to emphasize that different isn't necessarily wrong. I have two middle schoolers, and I know those of you who have high schoolers have already experienced this a lot. If you have elementary age kids only, let me tell you this is coming. Kids don't like, generally speaking, to be different. Different is a lot of times seen as wrong or it's bad, and it immediately makes kids go, wait, why am I different? What's going on with this? Because they intuitively think, well, something must be a problem. So humans have this tendency to assume that there is truth in numbers. They Kids notice when their peers are doing different things than others. So for example, my kids will tell me that everyone else has their own phone. Everyone else has social media. Everyone else gets to do sleepovers. Everyone else plays Fortnite. They have all of these things. And so it's natural for them to wonder, well, Maybe something's wrong. Maybe all this stuff that my parents are telling me isn't quite right. Maybe I don't want to be a Christian because I don't like all of these rules. But this is an opportunity for us to talk about the fact that if we're in this worldview minority, we're going to be different. So we set those expectations, like I mentioned before. But it's also a chance for them to think about the fact that just because you're different doesn't mean you're wrong. You could be wrong. You could be different and wrong. But that's not necessarily the case. And once again, I have to pull in the importance of apologetics here. If you're going to be different and it's going to be hard, you better have really good reason to believe that Christianity is true. 
And the third reason that it's so important to set our kids' expectations that they're in a worldview minority is that it fosters worldview vigilance. So when you talk as the parent regularly about the world versus Christianity, it leads kids to constantly have their worldview radar up because they're expecting to constantly see ideas that clash with their Christian worldview. They become vigilant about sorting everything they see into this is consistent with Christianity or this is inconsistent with Christianity. This is so extraordinarily important today as kids are so often quietly absorbing these secular views into their thinking without even realizing it. But the more that they know that most of what they'll see in here will not fit with Christianity, the more they learn to vigilantly separate Christian ideas from others. So these are just a few ways of talking about being in a worldview minority and why it's so important. Yes, we're in a spiritual decline in our country. That is absolutely true. It's absolutely uh, borne out by the research, but we can help our kids to understand how to process this when they know exactly what to expect and what it means for them. So that brings us to the final kind of downward spiral we're seeing, and that's the political downward spiral. Now, some of you are getting a little nervous already. Politics makes people get a little bit anxious. Uh, my liberal friends want to know how Christians can vote conservative. Conservative friends want to know how Christians can vote liberal. Friends on both sides want to know how people can vote for Trump specifically. There's just such a mess going on right now. So when I say political turmoil, I'm not talking about who to vote for. That's that's a whole other discussion, but I just mean the kind of animosity and outright hostility that we've been seeing people have toward one another, and even within the body of Christ. We are so divided as a country politically right now, and honestly, I, I don't see that going away anytime soon. So we need to consider how to talk with our kids about what's going on. They need some hand-holding in terms of what all this means politically. They, they hear it at school if they do go to school outside of the home. And they see it on the TV when you have it on the TV. They probably hear it in your conversations in the home. It's everywhere, but how should they process that? Well, of course, that's a really big question, but I want to give you three specific things to take away from this. Number one, the fact that there's hostility doesn't mean we should withdraw our interest from politics. Our faith should inform our vote. Now, a lot of people misunderstand what that means. And so I want to just read a little excerpt from my blog post that I wrote last week, which talked about this misunderstanding, because I think this is really the heart of what we want our kids to know about our involvement in politics. Here's what I said. The United States Constitution states, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This so-called Establishment Clause of the First Amendment is what people commonly refer to as the principle of quote-unquote separation of church and state. But just so you know, that term is nowhere actually in the Constitution. The Establishment Clause ensures that the government will not establish a state-supported church and will not force individuals to practice a particular religion. That's a great thing. It's freedom of religion. But that says nothing about how individuals should or shouldn't use their religious beliefs to inform their participation in public life. 
Secular doesn't mean we're supposed to create some kind of neutral, value-free society and keep our worldviews to ourselves. That's impossible. It's what a lot of people think that it means, but it's impossible because every society necessarily makes judgments about what is good and bad. And ultimately, those are worldview questions. So there is no such thing as having a perfectly neutral society because there are no universal worldview assumptions that we're all holding. It's expected that when you're in a secular country that everyone has the freedom to bring to bear in the public square their own conscience, their own worldview. And so Christians should be doing that as well. And I went on to explain in this post that Christians should vote for whatever platform best aligns with their values, just as anyone with any other worldview is free to do as well. That's the nature of a secular society. So I really want to emphasize that our kids need to have this understanding that it's not bad to quote unquote mix politics and religion. In fact, it's what is expected in a secular country that you're voting based on your own values. So I I want my kids to know that this hostility we're seeing, this isn't because Christians somehow stepped over a line and got involved in politics and they shouldn't have. There are a lot of problems with what's going on, but it's not because Christians are voting according to their values. And if you're interested more on that subject, I'd really encourage you to read my post from last week uh, about Christians shaming each other based on how they voted. The second thing that I want my kids to know that that I encourage you to share with your kids is that even when people share a worldview, they won't always agree politically. So this doesn't isn't just a straightforward worldview question. There are lots of reasons why people will disagree in terms of how they vote. But a big one for kids to understand is that there's a difference between agreeing on values and agreeing on policies. Immigration is a great example of this. You can have two Christians who both love their neighbor, who both are answering God's call to take care of their neighbor, and who see them as equally valuable in the eyes of God as fellow image bearers and care for them deeply, but have very different views on how to care for them when it comes to a policy perspective. I've seen that I've seen Christians sometimes say, well, you know, we need open borders because we need to care for all of these people who want to come into our country. And then another Christian will come along and say, but but wait a second, there are considerations for how we take care of the people who are already here. And so we have to be concerned with how we do that. We can't just open the border because that's not the best thing for the people who would come in and it's not the best thing for the people who are here. When we look at these two views, we're not looking at two people who disagree on the inherent value of the immigrant, but rather we're looking at two people who share that value of loving that person who wants to come to this country, but they just have different ideas on how we best manage this. And I think when we give our kids this understanding of where the disagreement lies, it helps them see better how to find common ground. And boy, do we need that today, right? We need more people who understand how to find common ground and work from there. When we sense that that is where the disagreement is, that we share the value, but it's what do you do in response to that, we can at least take the time to acknowledge with the person we're discussing with, hey, Both of us care about this person who would come in. We're just talking about how do we best handle this. And a third discussion point is that in other cases where we have huge political disagreement, 
we actually don't have a common value. So in the immigration example, we shared a value there. But there are a lot of other cases where we have totally different values and totally different goals. So of course, we're going to disagree about policy. And since we already talked about abortion in this episode, I'm just going to put that out as the example for this, that sometimes these are just worldview issues that we are going to fundamentally have a different view on some of these things all the way up from value to policies to goals. And in those cases, we may be at a total impasse. There may be very little that we can actually discuss with someone because we are ultimately talking about something that reflects two deeply held worldviews. In those cases, here's what we can do. We can always choose to discuss with grace, remembering that our character represents Jesus in all we do, whether we're talking about politics or anything else. We need our kids to grow up in this society in a way that they understand how to analyze the issues that are at hand, how to talk with others in gracious ways, to see when it's a worldview issue, to see when it's a value issue, to see when it's a policy issue, and to be more analytical about this. But what we don't want is for them to just back out and say, I don't care about politics. As Christians, we need to stand up for truth. And sometimes that means standing up for it in the public square when it comes to policy issues. All right, that's going to be it for our first episode. I hope that this has given you some ideas for how to talk about these moral and spiritual and political issues that are so difficult in our culture today. Obviously, there is so much more that could be said on any of them. We're just really scratching the surface here, but I hope that it gets you thinking about some of the ways that we can approach this in a faithful way to help our kids really process where we are as a culture, what that means for them, and how we can stand firm as Christ followers. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I am obviously totally new to this whole podcasting thing, so I'm sure it's going to take me several episodes to get it down, both technically and also just content-wise and knowing what to put in, not to say too much, not to say too little, all those things. So I appreciate your patience, and uh, if you have enjoyed what you've heard and you'd like to hear more content like this, then please go ahead and subscribe on your podcast players and I'll look forward to talking with you soon. Thanks so much for listening.